So we'll start off here with some uh, real complicated questions so that you can um, just kind of get the hang of how to use the clickers if you haven't done that before. So to answer, all you have to do is select the answer you want and press send. And you should see, hopefully you can read the numbers at the bottom of the screen. There is a number that corresponds to your pad ID number and that should turn dark blue if you've answered and your answer has been recorded. You can also, once you've selected one answer, you can always change your answer by selecting another answer and pressing send again. Okay, um, so this is an example of a question where there was no correct answer selected and um, as we go along you'll see some other ones that... Alright, so... <laughs> Yikes. Uh, okay, so that one person you might want to at least look at the syllabus or something. <laughs> All right, so the spirit of this question is we actually have a new professor in the department that's from this country, so I was just curious because uh, we ate dinner the other night and our uh, waiter thought that this country was not located where it was, so I was just curious how many of you actually knew where this country was. So the UK is the United Kingdom, in case you don't know what that means. Oh, okay. All right. Well, most of you got that right. Okay, um, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, Canada is not a continent. It's part of North America. Central Europe is not a continent either. I just made that up. And obviously Australia is a continent, but that's just where the UK sent their prisoners. So it's not really uh, where the whole country is located. All right, so here's uh, the final question. And just make sure you guys get all this right. So obviously I'm going to ask you this question before I start returning your grades to you because uh, your response definitely may change. All right, so with that said, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Uh, and we'll have uh, some more questions that will come up at the end of the class. But they're, uh, they're, and they're going to be directly related to what we talk about today. And the last time we left off, we were talking about the chemiosmotic theory and how that was used to dictate how ATP is formed during the electron transport chain. And uh, I think I stopped with this picture, which is um, displays my keen artistic skills of a mitochondria. Uh, we have the outer membrane of the mitochondria, the inner membrane of the mitochondria, the matrix, which is the innermost portion of the mitochondria, and finally the inner membrane space, which is very creatively named because it's the space between the two membranes. And in a second, we're going to look at uh, the electron transport chain in, in particular in more detail and these different structures, these different anatomical locations within the mitochondria are going to come up again because they're key to how the cell is able to produce ATP. So hopefully again this should all be repeat from last time. And what we'll do now is we'll just focus in on uh, the key components of a single electron transport chain as illustrated by the colored boxes here. And here would be a zooming in of that, and you can see that these four components of the electron transport chain are physically embedded in the inner membrane, which means they span the inner membrane. Parts of them touch the matrix, and parts of them touch the inner membrane space. And each of these components has a very specific name to it, but for the purposes of this class, I don't really feel it necessary to make you memorize that. So. What uh, we're going to refer to them today as, is as cytochrome or components one, two, three, and four. And uh, as you look at this, you may say, "Oh gosh, you can't count right because it goes one, three, two, four. 
And that's because the physical arrangement or the anatomical arrangement of these structures is in numerical order, so one, two, three, four. But the way they've been numbered here is how energy moves along them. So if you apply energy to the first complex, it appears to jump to the third complex and then back to the second complex and then over to the fourth complex. And that will be important here in just a moment when we look at energy that's deposited on these components from uh, the two reducing equivalents we talked about last time, NADH and FADH2. So if we start first with NADH and we bring NADH and we deposit or can, uh, interact it with this first complex, and this could be NADH that comes from the TCA cycle primarily. It could be NADH which comes from the conversion of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. Or it could be NADH which was made during glycolysis and subsequently transported into the mitochondria. Nonetheless, when you bring NADH here, it interacts with the first cytochrome or first complex, causing uh, a, re a reduction of this molecule to NAD and a transfer of electrons across all four cytochromes. And again, the pattern would be the electrons would start at the first complex, they would jump to the second complex, jump back to the third complex, and then continue on to the fourth complex. So just to summarize where, where we started and where we're to now, we started off with energy being in the form of glucose. Via the process of glycolysis and t the TCA cycle, we took that energy and we converted it into one of two things. We either converted it directly into ATP or we converted it into NADH or FADH2. We're now taking the energy that's in this case an NADH molecule and we're taking the electrons specifically which are a form of energy and we're running that energy across these four complexes much like you'd run electricity along a power line if you're powering different uh, plants in this case. And in doing so, when you power all four of these units, you cause a net of two protons to be pumped at the first complex, which means two protons, a net of two protons are taken from the matrix and they're pumped into the intermembrane space. At the third complex, you pump an additional two protons from the matrix into the intermembrane space. And at the fourth complex, you also pump two protons from the matrix into the intermembrane space. So if you're counting these up, uh, you should be counting six, a net of six protons being pumped from the matrix to the intermembrane space. So anytime you use the reducing equivalent NADH, NADH is going to result in a net of six protons being pumped from the matrix to the intermembrane space. So there's a couple things here, and we'll, we'll get to this a bit more in just a moment. But when you pump protons from the matrix to the intermembrane space, you create a situation where you have a high concentration of protons in the intermembrane space and a low concentration of protons in the matrix. And that concentration difference has an energy associated with it as well. So you've taken the energy that was in those electrons, you've used that energy to pump these protons, and effectively you've transferred the energy that was in the electrons into this gradient of high protons in the intermembrane space and low protons in the matrix. So that'll be important to keep in mind in a minute when we look at exactly how you would reform ATP through these processes. The other molecule that interacts with the electron transport chain that we previously discussed was FADH2. The only difference between NADH and FADH2 is where it interacts with the pathway. 
FADH2 actually only interacts with the second component. And the energy only goes one direction in these processes. So if you only interact it with the second component, you're not going to get any energy being transferred for the, to the first complex. The net effect is similar. You have energy from FADH2, specifically electrons, being used to energize the second, third, and fourth complexes. In doing so, you pump a net of two protons at the third complex and a net of two protons at the fourth complex. So the only difference now between NADH and FADH2 is when you use NADH, you get a net of six protons being pumped. And when you use FADH2, you get a net of four protons being pumped. And the net effect of all this is you end up with the generation of a proton gradient. And again, that proton gradient is such that NADH results in the net movement of six protons. Uh, protons are illustrated by a hydrogen with a positive charge. And when you use FADH2, your net transfer is four protons. And again, this is just a transfer of energy that's consistent with the first law of thermodynamics. So we've taken the energy that was in the form of electrons in NADH and FADH2, and now we've transferred that energy such that it's in a concentration gradient, which exists between the concentration of protons in the intermembrane space and the concentration of protons in the matrix. The final piece that we need to actually reform ATP is a fifth component, and that fifth component is called the F-complex, and it's also known as the ATP synthase. So F-complex or ATP synthase. This particular structure is one of the only locations on the inner membrane that protons are allowed to re-enter the matrix. And specifically, when two protons re-enter the matrix via the F-complex or ATP synthase, there is a liberation of the energy that's associated with those two protons. Once you liberate that energy, it happens to be the exact amount of energy that you need to reform the third phosphate bond in the ATP molecule. So as those protons come back through, they liberate free energy. You have ADP and PI present inside the matrix of the mitochondria. Those two interact with the ATP synthase. The energy that was released from the two protons moving is stored in the third bond, and the net effect is you reform ATP. So keep in mind the thing we talked about a lot last time is that in order to reform ATP, you need three things, really. You need adenosine diphosphate, or ADP. You need inorganic phosphate. And more importantly, you need the free energy that's going to go into that bond. If you don't have all three of those things, you can't reform ATP. Yeah, so the movement of those protons through the F-complex has a free energy associated with it, which is released. And once it's released, it can then be put into that bond between ADP and inorganic phosphate. And we'll talk a little bit more about the, how all this translates to uh, ATP production in just a moment. But if you're keeping track of things right there, the one thing you should just note is that um, if it takes two protons to reform an ATP molecule, that effectively means that for every NADH molecule you have, you get three ATP molecules. And for every FADH2 molecule you have, you get two, two ATP molecules. Yeah? Is that the same for the FADH2 also? 
Same, yeah, it's the exact same thing. So two pro in, in the case, for the purpose of what we're talking about here, two protons equals an ATP molecule that can be reformed. So really the only difference in that case between NADH and FADH2 is how many protons are pumped when that molecule is present. So with NADH, you pump six protons, that means you can get three ATP. And with FADH2, you pump four protons, which means you can only get two ATP. All right, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet and uh, obviously is important because this is oxidative metabolism we're talking about. Uh, several several uh, slides ago, we talked about the transfer of pyruvic acid to acetyl-CoA, and we demonstrated that's the step where CO2 is produced, but we still haven't even mentioned where O2 is utilized, and that's the last part that we're getting to. And if you zoom in just on these last two components of electron transport chains, so um, complexes two and four, if you have your electron flow coming across the components of the electron transport chain, when it reaches the end of the fourth cytochrome or fourth complex, it can't just run off into the matrix. And what, there's several biological reasons why that's the case. The easiest probably to understand is your body system prefers to be in a neutral balance. Anytime you have a molecule in your body that has a negative charge associated with it, it's going to always look for a positive charge. Electrons are negatively charged. They're always going to look for positive charges. So if you don't neutralize that molecule, it's just going to seek out a positively charged molecule. And the easiest for it to access is the uh, phospholipid bilayer, which actually surrounds the, the mitochondria itself. So if you didn't neutralize these electrons, they would become other things which can then cause damage to the body. But luckily, we do have a system in place to handle that. And that system relies on oxygen. Specifically, what happens is one half of molecular oxygen, or so molecular oxygen is O2, one half of O2 is O. O comes in and it binds a pair of electrons and it forms water. So this is also considered, uh, sometimes people will say they call um, oxygen in this case the final electron acceptor because it's present to accept the final electrons after they've been utilized to pump protons. Uh, one thing in particular that we know, there's a lot of things that are associated with aging, but one thing in particular is there is a change in the efficiency of O2 to buffer electrons. And some, some people speculate that that difference in efficiency is what translates to an increase in oxidative damage or other electron-related damage. So it's possible just the dysfunction of the system may contribute to some of the changes that you see in aging. All right, now that we've talked about glycolysis, the TCA cycle, and the electron transport chain, it's probably helpful to actually go through and tally up how many ATP we've generated along the way. And uh, the disclaimer is, as we look at these numbers, these are the numbers that I would like you to know for the purpose of this class. If you bought the current textbook, I think it has different numbers than the previous version of the textbook. And probably if you look on the internet, you'll find even different numbers than that. And the reality is that no one, I don't think, is 100% sure exactly how many ATP you get per molecule of glucose. And uh, the numbers that I'm going to show are, are what are generally considered to be the consensus as to what happens. The first process that we talked about last time was glycolysis. And in glycolysis, we produce a net of two ATP molecules, and we produce two NADH molecules. 
And again, this is assuming that the end product of glycolysis is pyruvic acid, which we're going to convert into acetyl-CoA. And the two ATP molecules obviously translate to two ATP molecules. The two NADH molecules translate anywhere between four and six ATP. So you may be sitting there now saying, well, wait a minute. He just said just a second ago, if it's an NADH molecule, you always get six ATP. And that's the case most of the time. And when I say most of the time, what it means is that's actually only the case if that NADH is produced inside the matrix of the mitochondria. TCA cycle, that occurs in the matrix of the mitochondria. And as such, any of the NADH you produce, they just go right over the electron transport chain. These NADH molecules are actually being produced in the cytoplasm, which means they have to be transported into the mitochondria. And in doing so, the transport mechanism always doesn't work exactly right. So sometimes an NADH that's produced in glycolysis becomes an FADH2 molecule inside the mitochondria. So if you had a molecule of glucose being metabolized, you would essentially have your two ATP molecules and your two NADH molecules. And if both of those got converted into FADH2 in the mitochondria, then you would have the four ATP because we get two ATP per FADH2 molecule. If both of those NADH molecules from glycolysis got converted into NADH in the mitochondria, then that would translate to effectively six ATP being produced. And if you had one being converted to NADH and one being converted to FADH2, you could end up with five ATP. So it's a little bit different depending on how that transporter works. The next step is um, the conversion of pyruvic acid or pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. And in that process, we generate two NADH molecules. That process occurs within the mitochondria, so those directly translate to six ATP molecules. So really to this point, we haven't, we've generated a, a fairly large amount of ATP, but nothing compared to what you can get when you metabolize it all the way. The next step would be that you would have to use the TCA cycle to metabolize that the rest of the way. And in doing so, each time you run the, the TCA cycle, you start with an acetyl-CoA molecule. You have two acetyl-CoA molecules from glucose, which means that you end up with two GTP molecules, six NADH molecules, and two FADH2 molecules. The GTP molecules themselves aren't particularly useful, but the body does have systems to convert that back to ATP. And in doing so, uh, the, the two GTP molecules, they directly become two ATP molecules. The six NADH molecules, they become 18 ATP molecules. And the two FADH2 molecules, they become four ATP molecules. So if you go through and you add all this up, you'll get that for this molecule of glucose, you can make somewhere between 36 and 38 ATP. And that's if you fully metabolize the whole molecule through the end of the electron transport chain.
Yeah, so that's during glycolysis. Right. It's the NADH that's made during glycolysis, and it's just that there's a transporter that moves that molecule. That molecule is not fat-soluble. That means you have to have a transporter to move it into the mitochondria, and the transporter doesn't work exactly right every time. Okay. So essentially it makes a mistake, more or less. It should be converting it to NADH, but for whatever reason it doesn't convert it to NADH. Um, it's not 100% of the time. You probably can't even put a percentage to it how often that actually happens. All right, so one other thing that's important to uh, take note of is we did get 36 to 38 ATP out of this molecule. And we'll talk more about the efficiency of these metabolic systems in uh, some subsequent lectures. But in general, the human energy systems are only about 20% efficient at taking the energy that's in glucose and converting that energy into ATP. So while we got 36 to 38 ATP, there's actually about four times more energy in that glucose molecule that could have been used to make ATP. And in the case of people, all that energy is uh, being lost in the form of heat, which is consistent with the second law of thermodynamics. So energy is not created or destroyed, is changing forms is the first law, and the second law is all physical processes lead to an increase in entropy. In the case of this system, the heat that's produced is entropy. It's disorder. So either the energy is going to go into ATP or it's going to go into heat, but it's not going to go into both. And in the again, in the case of the human metabolic system, most individuals are only about 20% efficient at extracting that energy that's in glucose and converting that into ATP. Yeah, yeah th I mean, theoretically, but no, there's not any biological systems that are 100% efficient. And the, um, there's also processes the body may use to make the energy systems even more inefficient. Um, so, for instance, certainly not something we ever have to worry about here, but if you're ever exposed to temperatures that would fr cause frostbite or freeze or lower your body temperature down a whole lot, one mechanism the body has to use to maintain body heat is to cause an un uncoupling of uh, energy production from these systems which means that you burn glucose and you don't make any ATP. You make 100% heat. And that's, that's one way the body can actually maintain body heat during extreme conditions. And then usually what gets people in trouble is when their body loses the ability to make, a, make energy that way or make heat that way, then they're, um, it's not going to be good. So when you're, so when you're, you're making 100% heat, you're not getting any ATP at all? Probably, you know, or very, so little it doesn't matter because that's not why you're activating the metabolic systems. Virtually energy. Yeah, or the system just can't keep up. One of the two. So, like for instance, we'll talk about a little bit more. We'll talk about heat transfer in a couple of weeks. And uh, obviously, if you fall like wa water, for instance, transfers heat about six to eight times as fast as air. So, if you fell in cold water, you're, there's no way you're really cold water. Your body's not going to keep up with the, the amount of heat it's losing and you're not going to probably make it very long if you don't get out of the water very fast. So, okay, so if we talk, okay, so the last time when we talked about how glucose gets into the muscle cell, uh, I talked about hexokinase. One of the roles of hexokinase is to keep glucose from leaving the muscle cell. So when you get glucose into the muscle cell and you phosphorylate it with hexokinase, that glucose is never leaving the muscle cell until it gets metabolized. No, it gets, well, yeah, it, it, certainly if you're at rest, it would get stored in the form of glycogen. And so the glucose you're converting into ATP, and you can't store ATP. You can't really store ATP. You can store a little bit of it, but for the most part, you have to continually make it. 
And um, if you're look, if you're talking about exercise in an exercising individual, glucose can't supply energy during exercise because it doesn't the the processes which activate are basically phosphorylate glucose, meaning hexokinase, and the transporters that move glucose into the muscle cell they don't work fast enough. And um, there's sometimes like I think in your even in your book it may refer to hexokinase as the rate limiting step. So the way you can think about it is this whole process, all these processes we talk about, they're only as fast as what the slowest step is. So if the slowest step is hexokinase, that's dictating the rate of that your body makes ATP at. However, if you can use glycogen, you can av avoid the timing of the hexokinase step and you can speed up the rate of ATP production. And the rate of ATP production from these systems is about twice as fast if you're using glycogen instead of glucose. Yeah. Okay. All right, so a couple things about exercise as it relates to oxidative phosphorylation. Most of the exercise we're talking about is going to be endurance type exercises. Uh, typically things that are longer than say a 1500 meter run. The activity duration is traditionally something greater than two minutes. The primary fuel storage sites are going to be the cytosol, the blood, the liver, and uh, fat or adipose tissue. And not, not today, well maybe today, but at some point we're going to talk a little bit about uh, fat metabolism and how that works. The rate of ATP reformation in comparison to anaerobic glycolysis and the ATP PC system is very slow. And hopefully that's been obvious. When we talked about the ATP PC system, you have one reaction. In one reaction, you go from ADP back to ATP. Anaerobic glycolysis, now it's taking about 14 reactions to get back to ATP. And now to make ATP via this system, you have uh, about 35-something reactions to get all of that glucose metabolized and to the form of uh, ATP. The, acute, the key uh, fuels that are used by this system are glycogen, lipids, and to a lesser extent amino acids. For the most part, when we look at an exercising individual, Proteins or amino acids are not the primary source of ATP production during exercise. Amino acids and proteins, uh, they provide the structure for ATP reformation, and they pro provide the structure for skeletal muscle contraction, but they're not ideally suited to be substrates for ATP production. So really what that means is that uh, your body is going to rely on fats or lipids, and it's going to rely on uh, carbohydrates. And then when in, a, in a, couple of, a couple more lectures, we'll talk about how exercise intensity actually influences um, which of these substrates is used to make ATP. And what you'll find is the harder you exercise, you can't really even use lipids to make energy. All you can use is carbohydrates and more specifically uh, glycogen. All right, so similar to what we looked at with the other energy systems, uh, this graph has a concentration on the y-axis as a percentage of resting values and exercise time on the x-axis in minutes. And what we find is if we look at muscle glycogen stores, as exercise progressive progresses, assuming the person wasn't uh, drinking any sort of carbohydrate drink, there's a progressive decline in muscle glycogen stores. 
That's combined with uh, a fairly consistent maintenance or a slowed decline of ATP levels. And the net effect is, is that as your glycogen levels drop off, one of the only ways that your body can maintain ATP levels is to turn to fat metabolism. And that's kind of a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, the good thing is you are providing ATP. The bad thing is fat metabolism is even slower than metabolism of glycogen. So really, if you have to use fat, you're going to have to slow down the intensity which you're exercising at. So one of the things I said several times in the last time we met was the key to exercise is at a given exercise intensity, there's a given rate of ATP utilization. The way that your body is able to maintain that intensity is because it can supply ATP at the same rate that it's being used or utilized. And in this case, you're going along, you're using glycogen, you're providing ATP at a certain rate, and then all of a sudden you don't have any glycogen left. So your body says, oh, okay, well, I'll use fat to make energy, but you can't make, you can't make ATP as fast that way. And the net effect is you have to slow down your intensity or decrease your intensity in order to maintain the activity level. If you don't decrease your intensity, the net uh, effect would be activation of anaerobic energy systems and uh, essentially an eventual collapse of the energy system such that you would have to stop exercising altogether. Talking a little bit more about the importance of muscle glycogen, during long duration exercise, the hexokinase enzyme simply doesn't work fast enough to supply the demand for glucose 6-phosphate. The, the way the body primarily provides glucose 6-phosphate during exercise is via a process known as glycogenolysis. And that term, if you break it down, what it means, you can see the word glycogen in there and you can see the word lysis. And uh, lysis refers to breakdown or destruction. So this is uh, the breakdown of glycogen. And when you break down glycogen, you have the ability to release multiple glucose 6-phosphate molecules at one time and specifically provide them at the rate that is sufficient to maintain the speed of ATP production from glycolysis. So again, the, the term I think I said earlier was that hexokinase is the limiting step for the whole metabolic system. So ideally, it still has to happen, but you're just changing the time that it has to happen at. So instead of a glucose molecule coming in, being phosphorylated, going to, glyco going to glycolysis, what you have happening is a glucose molecule coming in, being phosphorylated, being added to the glycogen molecule, and then the glycogen molecule releasing multiple glucose 6-phosphate molecules at one time. And as we'll see in a moment, the way glycogen is designed, it's designed to have a branched nature. Uh, almost looks very similar to the way uh, limbs on a tree would be. So lots of tree limbs, and each of the limbs represents chains of glucose 6-phosphate molecules. So when you activate the breakdown of uh, glycogen, you effectively release a glucose 6-phosphate molecule off of every one of those branches. And you can get hundreds or thousands of, of these molecules being released at one time. The, the key to the hexokinase step is hexokinase and the reaction it has with glucose prevents glucose from leaving the muscle cell. 
And if you didn't do this step, essentially what would happen is uh, the reason that glucose moves into the cell is the presence at rest, the presence of insulin, insulin interacting with the muscle cell and causing the muscle cell to take up glucose with the concentration gradient, which means there's high amounts of glucose in the bloodstream, low amounts in the muscle, and the glucose is taken up by the muscle. If you didn't convert the glucose in the muscle to something else, eventually what you would have is high concentration of glucose in the muscle, low concentration in the bloodstream, and those exact same transporters or similar transporters would take that glucose and move it right back out of the muscle cell into the bloodstream. That's obviously not what we want to happen. So when hexokinase works on that glucose, it phosphorylates it, and then once it's phosphorylated, it's never leaving the muscle cell and it's eventually going to be processed by the glycolytic system. So this is what the structure of glycogen loosely looks like. Obviously, this is a 2D representation of a three-dimensional structure. But the centerpiece of glycogen is a component called P-glycogenin. And this is a demonstration of what the branches might look like coming off of that. Each one of the little hexa hexamer molecules, the red molecules, each one of those would be a glucose 6-phosphate molecule. And you can see just in this example, if we were to activate the breakdown of this molecule, you could probably get 8 to 10 glucose 6-phosphate molecules being released at one time. And then those go directly to glycolysis where they get processed uh, down the road. And then if you were taking in glucose at the same time, the glucose would be acted on by hexokinase, and the resulting glucose 6-phosphate would mo most likely be stored back into the glycogen molecule. All right, so we've talked about how you can make ATP or reform ATP in the mitochondria via the electron transport chain, but what we really didn't talk about is how you can get ATP that you've reformed out of the mitochondria and more importantly, how do we get more ADP and inorganic phosphate into the mitochondria? So what's happening is, as the skeletal muscle is contracting, you're utilizing ATP at the, the contractile units, so the actin and myosin, and that's resulting in the formation or the release of adenosine diphosphate and inorganic phosphate. So you need to get those components into the mitochondria, and you need to get ATP that you've just reformed out of the mitochondria. And none of those molecules are fat-soluble, which means they all require transporters. And if we looked at uh, just the inner membrane itself, so the inner membrane is demonstrated by the two lines. We have the inner membrane space on the left side and the matrix on the right side. The first transporter is something that's referred to as the ADP, ATP antiporting mechanism. And when you activate the ADP-ATP antiport mechanism, you move one adenosine diphosphate molecule into the matrix of the mitochondria, and you move one ATP molecule out of the mitochondria. So at this point, we're halfway to where we wanted to be. We've gotten the ATP out, so we're good to go there. We've gotten the ADP in, so the only other thing we need is that inorganic phosphate. And the inorganic phosphate is moved by a second transporter known as the inorganic phosphate proton symporter. The word antiport means transporting against. The word symporting in this case means transporting together. And what happens is you have uh, phosphoric acid, H2PO4, one of those molecules being transported in 
with a proton. And then that molecule gets broken down and you can get your actual inorganic phosphate molecule out of there. So if you earlier, when I was saying how many protons were pumped by NADH and FADH2, you may have noticed that I kept saying a net of two protons. A net of two protons pumped here, a net of two protons pumped here. It's because actually, and I'll, I'll lay this out for you in just a moment, there's actually three protons pumped at every one of those components. The net is two, and two is what's required for ATP reformation. But you need the third proton at each one of those molecules to move inorganic phosphate into the mitochondria. So that's where the, that comes from. All right, so as I said just a second ago, you have a total of three protons being pumped at each one of these cytochromes or complexes in the electron transport chain. Of those three, the two are used at the F complex to reform ATP. And the third is used to transport inorganic phosphate into the matrix of the mitochondria from the intermembrane space via the inorganic phosphate proton symporting mechanism. All right, so any questions about how this all is working? Um, so one thing, you, whether you noticed it or not, is that if no one says, hey, can you slow down or go back, I'll just keep going. And sometimes I'll even go faster. So not, it's not intentional. It just kind of happens. So um, if you're still trying to get something written down and um, you need me to pause or go back a slide, all you have to do is raise your hand or <laughs> screech or whatever. Back a slide there. See, there we go. <coughs> Asking you shall receive. You have to keep. Well, you have to keep reforming ATP. And really, it doesn't. ATP is the most important molecule, energy molecule in the muscle cell. But the reason it's the most important is because it's the one that's got the free energy in it. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to: is we need that energy to contract skeletal muscle. So that's that's the bottom line. So. That energy is being used. You have to constantly reform that energy in order to maintain exercise, if we're talking about exercise. All right. Uh, so if we look and we take all the energy systems we've talked about and we look at them all together, if we have the percentage of contribution on the y-axis and we have different uh, durations of intensity on the x-axis. What you'll find is that the response for the ATP PC system looks something like this. So at, at rest, it's very high. When you initially start exercising, it's very high. And then after about 10 seconds or so, there's not a lot left of this system. In, in most individuals, after about 10 seconds, the system's pretty much uh, done with. There's not a lot more that it's going to contribute. If you look at glycolysis, uh, this is the response you typically see. So after it takes it about 10 seconds or so, its maximal output is uh, met usually around 30 seconds. But you can maintain ATP output from this system for up to about three to five minutes. And again, that's just in a normal recreationally active individual. And the final thing is the oxidative system. 
the oxidative system typically takes about somewhere between one and three minutes to get fully activated. And once it is activated, it can provide energy for two, three, four, five hours or longer. Just kind of depends on how trained the individual is. The other thing you should kind of take home as you look at this graph is you should see that if somebody was exercising for about 10 seconds, the only energy system that would really be active and providing a sufficient amount of ATP would be the ATP PC system. If you extended the duration of activity to two minutes, you would see activation of the ATP PC system and anaerobic glycolysis. And then if you looked over and you saw um, someone exercising for 60 minutes or longer, or even really longer than five minutes, you would see activation of first the ATP PC system, then the anaerobic glycolysis system, then the oxidative uh, phosphorylation system. And in the case of that last type of exercise, once uh, oxidative ATP production is fully activated, the other energy systems would just taper off and uh, return to an pretty much what they are uh, at rest or until they're needed again. That's, uh, that's pretty much it for what we're gonna talk about with glucose metabolism. Some of the uh, concepts of it will come up a little bit more when we get to uh, metabolism in, in more detail and, and endocrinology. So looking now at lipid metabolism, essentially there are three types of lipid molecules. There are fatty acids, there are triglycerides, which are a storage form of lipids. And there are phospholipids. And phospholipids, I've already mentioned, they're the, the components which make up the cell membrane, uh, the nuclear membrane, and the, matrix, or the mitochondria membrane. And really, for the most part, they're not a key source of energy during exercise. So really the two molecules we're going to focus on uh, for the rest of the class today are fatty acids and triglycerides. One thing that we know about lipid metabolism is that it actually requires more oxygen to generate ATP than if you use carbohydrate metabolism. So what on earth does that mean? Well, uh, it means that for an individual exercising outside in Houston that's just going for a run, it probably doesn't mean anything. Um, if you're looking at someone from Houston going to Colorado and trying to go for a run, that might have a, be a significant problem because uh, altitude, acute exposure to altitude affects uh, oxygen availability. Also, if you were looking at a well-trained athlete, there's a pretty good chance they may develop uh, what's referred to as exercise-induced hypoxemia, which means that uh, as a result of their training, their body systems don't provide oxygen as well. And that can certainly influence which um, substrate is preferably used. To give it, to kind of put it all in perspective, uh, a lean individual can store somewhere in the neighborhood of 75,000 kilocalories uh, worth of energy as triglycerides. And uh, if you're not, if you're not familiar with how to relate that back to exercise, you could exercise for several days with that amount of energy continuously if you could actually convince your body to do that. To put that in perspective, a lean individual who hasn't carbohydrate loaded can usually store somewhere around 2,500 kilocalories of energy from glycogen, 
Now, depending on how hard you were to go and exercise, that 2,500 kilocalories, that may last you two hours or it may last you five hours. It just depends on how intense the exercise is that you're doing. The key to metabolizing fatty acids is to first start with triglyceride lipolysis. And the processes of triglyceride lipolysis are catalyzed by three uh, reactions, which are all controlled by the enzyme hormone-sensitive lipase. And the lipase, that refers to lipids and more specifically the breakdown of lipids. And hormone-sensitive suggests that it re responds to other hormones. And when we get to the endocrinology section, we'll talk some more about the hormones that activate hormone-sensitive lipase. The triglyceride molecule can be generally drawn like this. Uh, three fatty acid molecules, as the name suggests. And then uh, the final piece is the glycerol backbone. And the, the orange bent line is a three-carbon molecule that's called glycerol. And that's the, the key piece that holds the triglyceride together. So these three fatty acids are all bound to, are each bound to a carbon on glycerol. Interestingly, glycerol and lactate and pyruvate, they all have a very similar shape because they all have three carbons and they just have slightly different arrangements of the components in that chain. And uh, I just generically wrote fatty acid here because if you know uh, anything about fatty acids, you know that there's about 90 million different kinds of fatty acids and they're all named based on the number of carbons that they have and some of them have chemistry names that make sense and some of them just have random names that make no sense. So um, really, just for the purpose of this, you should just know that a triglyceride is a glycerol molecule with three fatty acids connected. So what hormone-sensitive lipase is gonna do for us is it's gonna release those fatty acid molecules. And it's gonna do that by eliminating the bonds between glycerol and the fatty acids. One way to track fatty acid metabolism is actually to measure glycerol concentration in the blood. Because essentially, if you have all these different types of fatty acids and theoretically they're being metabolized, you can't really measure a concentration of one of these fatty acids. But glycerol will always be present. And the more fatty acids or more triglycerides you break down, the more glycerol you'll have present in the bloodstream. So one way to track the metabolism of fatty acids is actually to measure glycerol concentration because it's pretty stable during exercise. All right, so now that we've got the fatty acids, uh, we actually need to process those a little bit before we can uh, metabolize them with uh, the TCA cycle and the electron transport chain. When we talked about glucose, that processing mechanism was glycolysis. So glycolysis processes glucose to pyruvate and to eventually acetyl-CoA. Essentially, uh, fat metabolism doesn't use glycolysis, but it does result in the formation of acetyl-CoA molecules, and that's what beta-oxidation does. Beta-oxidation occurs in the matrix of the mitochondria, so all the molecules you produce during beta-oxidation they all can translate back into ATP uh, energy for ATP reformation. The system itself is catalyzed by a series of four distinct reactions. And the final end product of those four reactions is a fatty acid molecule which has been shortened by two carbons 
and an acetyl-CoA molecule. So for example, if I started with a 16-carbon fatty acid, after it went through beta-oxidation one time, I would have a 14-carbon fatty acid, and I would have acetyl-CoA. The acetyl-CoA that you form will enter the TCA cycle, and the fatty acid that you're left with will undergo another cycle of beta-oxidation. And I'll, I'll show how this works in just a second. But so essentially, in that example I just gave, we have the 16-carbon fatty acid. It goes through beta-oxidation, becomes a 14-carbon fatty acid and an acetyl-CoA molecule. And then you go and you take that 14-carbon fatty acid through beta-oxidation, and you end up with a 12-carbon fatty acid and another acetyl-CoA molecule. And then you would have a 10-carbon fatty acid and acetyl-CoA, an 8-carbon and acetyl-CoA, a 6-carbon and acetyl-CoA, a 4-carbon and acetyl-CoA, and then two acetyl-CoA molecules. This is how that process actually works. And the first thing that we start with is a saturated fatty acid. And I'm sure as everybody knows by now, there are unsaturated fatty acids. And um, that means that these are molecules which have uh, double bonds somewhere in them, meaning that all the bonds within the molecule are not saturated. And there's a whole other process that it takes to convert unsaturated fatty acids to saturated fatty acids. And it's way too... Um, complicated to try to explain for the purposes of this class and doesn't really make uh, a lot of sense to do anyway. So for the purposes of what we're talking about, we're always starting with uh, a saturated fatty acid. That saturated fatty acid is put into beta-oxidation, and the first thing that we generate is what I'm generically calling product one. Uh, you can't really say specifically what the molecule would be that's formed, because it's dependent on what type of fatty acid you started with. But you get product one, and when you go from this saturated fatty acid to product one, you generate an FADH2 molecule. This is exactly the same as the FADH2 that you just got during uh, the TCA cycle. You then convert product one to product two, product two to product three, and in the process of converting product two to product three, you generate an NADH molecule. And then finally, you generate uh, your acetyl-CoA molecule and a saturated fatty acid, which has been shortened by two carbons. The easiest way to determine how many times you'd have to use beta-oxidation is to take the number of carbons that the fatty acid has, divide it by two, and subtract one. So essentially that means if you had an 18-carbon fatty acid, you would have 9 minus 1. It would take 8 cycles of beta-oxidation. So the reason only 8 is because that when you come to the 8th time, you're going to have a 4-carbon fatty acid. And at the end of the process, you're going to have two 2-carbon two molecules. And acetyl-CoA is a 2-carbon molecule. So effectively, at the end of that final cycle of beta-oxidation, you have two acetyl-CoAs. So the number of fatty acids divided by 2 minus 1.
All right, so now we can do the same type of thing that we did for um, glucose, except we can do it for a fatty acid. And we have to pick one to use. So just for the purposes of this example, I'm going to use stearic acid, which uh, is an 18-carbon fatty acid. But uh, hope, you know, for the purposes of the exam, you should be able to do this for any length carbon uh, fatty acid because it's just a matter of multiplying things out. So the first thing that I didn't mention was in order to start beta oxidation the first time, you actually have to use two ATP molecules. So right off the bat, you start off with a negative two ATP molecules. For this particular molecule, we need eight cycles of beta oxidation. And eight cycles of beta oxidation is going to yield eight NADH molecules and eight FADH2 molecules. In the electron transport chain, that will directly translate to 24 ATP molecules and 16 ATP molecules. Then we get to the TCA cycle, and for this fatty acid, we have nine acetyl-CoA molecules, which means nine times through the TCA cycle, which is going to produce 27 NADH molecules, nine FADH2 molecules, and nine GTP molecules. The 27 NADH molecules directly translate to 81 ATP. The 9 FADH2 molecules translate to 18 ATP. And the 9 GTP molecules translate to 9 ATP. And if you add all those up, you get a grand total of 146 ATP molecules. If we look at that in comparison to glucose, Essentially, for this fatty acid, we got uh, effectively uh, four times as much um, ATP molecules out of it, but um, it takes a lot longer to get those ATP molecules out, and the whole process itself is a lot slower. The other slight problem is, if you remember uh, when we talked about uh, glycolysis and these things the last time, the location where you produce CO2 is when you convert pyruvic acid to acetyl-CoA. This process never does that step. And in never doing that step, you really don't ever produce CO2, but you will continue to use large amounts of O2 because every one of these reducing equivalents you produce requires half of a molecular oxygen to get rid of the electrons that result from it. So how exactly does beta oxidation work during exercise? Well, obviously, it's used to produce ATP. Hopefully, it's obvious all the stuff we've talked about is used to produce ATP. And for the most cases, in an individual who is exercise trained, the primary way their body makes ATP at rest is with beta oxidation and lipid metabolism. And that's a unique adaptation that allows for the sparing of muscle glycogen stores. The second way it's used to produce ATP is when the exercise intensity is very low. So for instance, when the exercise intensity is less than 40% of maximal effort, that's the primary time that you would be using fatty acids to make ATP. A third reason that you would use beta oxidation is when glycogen is not abundant. 
The most obvious case uh, of this is when uh, you're at the end of a very long duration exercise. Uh, sometimes you'll hear, um, uh, if, you, if you ever hear an elite level marathon runner talk after they've just um, not finished where they wanted to finish, uh, I was going to say tanked their event, but we'll just say not finished where they wanted to finish. Uh, but uh, one of the things they'll say, sometimes they'll say, I didn't get my nutrition right. And that usually means I didn't have enough glycogen to maintain the pace I wanted to maintain for the whole time. And if you run out of glycogen, you have to turn to fat to make ATP. And if you turn to fat, you have to slow down. You can't go as fast, which would effectively mean that you didn't meet your target goal. How the body uses carbohydrate or fat is dictated by a principle that's known as the crossover effect. And we'll look at the crossover effect in just a moment. So any questions up until this point? This uh, graph is meant to demonstrate the crossover effect, and on the y-axis you have percent utilization, and uh, you can think of it as percent, um, per percent utilization of the substrate, essentially, during exercise. The only two we're going to talk about are carbohydrate and fat, because they're the ones that provide most of the energy during um, exercise. And then on the x-axis, we have exercise intensity as a percentage of maximal effort. And what you essentially see is a relationship similar to this. At very low intensities of exercise, low percentages of maximal effort, fat is the primary fuel used to make ATP. However, as exercise intensity increases, there is an increased demand of ATP, and that has to be supplied at a certain rate. And the only way to do that is by metabolizing carbohydrate, and more specifically, muscle glycogen. The actual point at which this crossover occurs in an untrained individual is somewhere between 35 and 40% of maximal effort. Yeah. So certainly, if, and we'll talk about this in some subsequent lectures, certainly if somebody was trying to do aerobic exercise training, one of the things you're trying to do is push the crossover point further to the right, meaning it would occur at a higher percentage of maximal effort. Um, the other thing is this 35 to 40 percent uh, of effort is uh, if you've ever read in a muscle or fitness magazine or something like that, they'll say, oh, if you want to lose weight and you want to burn fat, you have to exercise below 40 percent of your maximal effort. That's where this comes from. The only thing that they left off uh, when they usually say that is there's actually two factors that determine how much uh, energy you expend during exercise. Intensity is only one of them. The other is uh, duration. So the reality is, based on all the literature we have, is it really doesn't matter whether or not the calorie you burn came from carbohydrate or came from fat. If you're burning more calories than you're taking in, you lose weight. And what people will say is, oh, but you want to selectively try to lose only burn fat during exercise. So you have to exercise below 40% of maximal effort, which that means essentially you can give uh, yourself the option you can either exercise for an hour at 60 to 80% of your max, or four hours at 40% of your max to get the same caloric expenditure. And so that's the part that's usually left out. And uh, when you really come back and you look at that type of duration, most people aren't going to want to exercise for four hours when they could exercise for one hour. 
And all the research suggests that you don't get any difference in weight loss, whether it's four hours at 40% or one hour at 60 to 80%. Okay, so a couple of questions and then we will call it a day. All right, so first up. Metabolism of fat is more efficient than metabolism of carbohydrate. So efficiency could be related to um, oxygen utilization, essentially, or rate of production. So obviously the answer should be false. Fat is not more efficient at making ATP than carbohydrate in terms of either rate or oxygen utilization. So complete metabolism of two glucose molecules will produce how many ATP molecules? Okay. So this demonstrates the importance of reading the question. Okay, it says two, not one. So you should have taken all the numbers we talked about earlier and multiplied by two. So one thing I can tell you is that as it gets closer to time for the test, make sure when you take the test, you read the questions very carefully. And if you don't know exactly what the question's asking, you ask because Every, almost every year I've taught this class, people come in to look at their exam and say, oh, gosh, I didn't read the question very well. So most of your mistakes can be eliminated by simply reading the question and making sure you understand what it's asking you. All right, next up, muscle glycogen is important to ex exercising individuals or individual because they rapidly supply glucose 6-phosphate. True or false? All right, so I think I said it, I'd have to go back and re listen to myself again, but I think I said at least three or four times today, this is why glycogen is very important to the skeletal muscle and to exercising individuals. All right, so that's it. Um, next time, exercise metabolism. <laughs> Yeah, a list of uh, the people that registered their CPS devices. Yeah.